Good morning, faith family. Morning. You look good. You got a Bible? Go to Acts chapter 2. That was just free. I just feel like I'd share that. Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. We are finishing this morning our vision series. I can assure you we are not finished with our vision. We have been trying to lay out for you uh, in the month of March a framework. And uh, faith family, this is going to be something that we'll continue to talk about uh, in the months and weeks to come. We're just laying a foundation that we will then build key strategies and ministries and events and programs all aligned with these main categories. So if you have felt a little bit like, well, this seems like some things we already know is good. Well, that's a great thing. But know that a lot of details are coming, strategies are coming in the months to come. But we have to start with that framework. And what is the framework? First of all, our purpose is we exist to see our lives, our community, and our world transformed by the power of the gospel. How many of you have heard that at least 50 times by now? Sweet. Now, how do we accomplish that? Through the process, we've looked at Acts chapter 2 of gathering for worship, through growing in the Word, through giving to the work sacrificially, and then this morning we'll add the final component that we see here in Acts 2, and that is going to the world. That God has given us a mission, and here at Berean, we're going to take that mission seriously. We do, and we will continue to take it seriously. And I want to show you that here in Acts chapter 2 uh, this morning, so if you're able to stand, I'd encourage you to do so as we honor the reading of God's Word. Acts chapter 2, let's look back at this passage that we've been unpacking now for a few weeks. Luke writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together, and they had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Pray with me. God, thank you so much for giving us these words that we can uh, be encouraged by and challenged by this morning. And Lord, I I do ask that you would do that. I am praying that there will be a deep, deep conviction um, in our hearts, individually and as a faith family, for your mission. I would pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and awaken us if there is any life that is disconnected from the calling you've placed on us. Please do that by your grace in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Lisa Middleton was the kind of girl that would drive any youth pastor crazy. She was the kind of girl that whenever she was at church, she was happy to let you know she didn't want to be there. She never participated. She always seemed disinterested. In fact, when the service was over, she was always the first to leave. In fact, though you probably wouldn't say it publicly, she was the kind of teenager that you would think to yourself is hopeless. 
But that all changed one night. Mark, her youth pastor, just finished leading a Bible study. And instead of Lisa running out the door as she normally would do, she ran up to Mark, tears just streaming down her face. Lisa was under conviction, and she began to share with Mark the sin that she'd been hiding, the struggles that she'd been facing, the battle that had been taking place inside her. She just said, I am so tired. And I know you think that I've never listened to a word you've ever said, but I've listened and heard more than you know. Tonight, I want Jesus as my Savior. And right there in that youth room of that church, Lisa surrendered her life to Jesus Christ. Now, if Lisa's story stopped there, it would be an awesome story, but it doesn't. Lisa didn't know that much about being a Christian, but she knew that the Bible was kind of important. So she decided, tomorrow when I go to school, I'm going to take my Bible. She got up the next morning, she finished her Cheerios, she was halfway out the door to catch the bus, and she realized she forgot her Bible. She didn't have a lot of time because she didn't want to miss the bus, so she went back inside, grabbed the first Bible that she could find, and it was one of those old coffee table Bibles, you know, the kind like Moses autographed. They got pictures of naked baby angels all the way through it, you know those kind. She picks up this big old coffee table Bible. She starts going down the driveway, and you can't even imagine the expression of those students on the bus. They are staring at her like, what is that Bible doing carrying Lisa to the bus? (laughs) She got in the bus, and she sat by herself because the Bible took up like two-thirds of the seat. And then she gets to class, and the teacher says, "Uh, we're going to have a study period. Translation, I haven't prepared anything, so just read something. (laughs) She picks up that old coffee table Bible with naked baby angel pictures, and she just starts reading it in class. Everybody's staring at Lisa like, what in the world has happened to her? In fact, one of her classmates that was seated next to her said, Lisa, are you okay? And right there in that classroom, Lisa shared with her classmate how she had surrendered her life to Jesus Christ. If Lisa's story stopped there, it'd be an awesome story, but it doesn't stop. Later that day, Lisa went to the cafeteria for lunch. She's sitting there by herself because people are freaked out about the naked baby angel, so they're not sure how to handle her. She's sitting there, and she's like, God, I want to be a witness for you here today. What should I do? And she just felt God told her to pray. So she prayed. Word is beginning to spread throughout the school, and so when Lisa finished her prayer, a football player in the cafeteria got up from his table, took a hamburger bun, which in most school cafeterias is a deadly weapon, put ketchup on it, smeared it on Lisa, and said, I hear you're a Christian. We'll tell Jesus I said hello. Walked off. One thing I've learned in life, when one person's a jerk, it only encourages somebody to be a bigger jerk. And so a second football player got up from the table, walked over with a hamburger bun with mustard on it, smeared it on Lisa and said, you can tell Jesus hi for me as well. Now, I don't know about you, but at that moment, I am channeling my inner Chuck Norris. (laughs) I mean, it is about to be on, brother. (laughs) 
Lisa doesn't say a word. She just got up, went to the bathroom to clean herself off. Two girls that were seated at that table with those two football players followed her into the bathroom and said, Lisa, what is going on with you? And right there in that school bathroom, Lisa led those two girls to faith in Jesus Christ. If Lisa's story stopped there, it'd be a really awesome story, but it doesn't. You see, at Lisa's school, once a month, all the school clubs would get together for an assembly, and occasionally they would invite a guest speaker out. Somehow, Lisa convinced the principal to let her youth pastor come and share. A few weeks passed, Mark shows up at school, the principal pulls him aside and says, you're only here because of Lisa. The last few weeks, I've been checking up on her. Her attitude is different. Her, her grades are up. I mean, she's a whole new person. You have five minutes, then sit down and shut up. Mark said, thank you. <laughs> he shared five minutes, and he sat down. The assembly was dismissed. The students started going back to their classroom, and two students came up to Mark and said, would you tell me more about Jesus? Guess who they were? Ketchup and mustard boy. <laughs> and over the next several months, there were many students who would come to faith in Jesus Christ because of the witness of Lisa Middleton. A few months passed, and Mark asked her, what has made you such a bold witness? She told him, very simply, the way I look at it is when you know Jesus, you want other people to know him too. When you know Jesus, you want others to know him too. You see, dear friends, being on mission with God, being a witness for God, is not some kind of religious obligation, some, some kind of arm-twisting duty. It is the natural expression of a heart that has been cut by the gospel. When the gospel cuts our hearts, we don't sit around talking about the mission. We're just on mission. In fact, that's exactly what we see here in Acts 2, isn't it? Verse 37, they have been cut to the heart by this gospel message. They have put their faith in Jesus Christ. This produces a joyful gathering of worship, a faithful devotion to the Word of God, a sacrificial fellowship with one another, but it doesn't stop there. Indeed, it cannot. Because if all we are known for is gathering and growing and giving, we will show no evidence of the work of the gospel in our lives. The gospel launched these early Christians out into the world as witnesses for Jesus. Why is that? It's because good news, quite frankly, can't be contained. You, you, you know this to be true in your life, don't you? You go to watch a really good movie, and all of a sudden you tell all your friends, man, you really got to go see that new Denzel movie. It's awesome. 
Or you go to a good restaurant with really good food. What do you do? You tell other people, man, that steak was fantastic. You got to try it. You have a new grandchild. You're posting pictures on Facebook. You want everybody to see pictures of that baby. You get engaged. If it was up to you, it'd be the lead story on the nightly news. Because when you experience something that is good, you automatically become a carrier of good news. Nobody twists your arm. Nobody makes you feel obligated or guilty. You've experienced something so amazing, so awesome, so life-changing, you can't contain it. And that's what happens in Acts. It doesn't surprise us because the book of Acts starts with this, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be, not you might be, if the pastor preaches a motivating enough sermon, you'll consider it. When the Spirit of God comes, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And in just a page and a few verses later, that's what we see in Acts 2. And I want to show you two phrases out of verse 47 that I think speaks to us about our mission, about our going, taking this gospel to the world. Two things. Notice, first of all, the church and the mission to serve. I want to show you this. Verse 47. Here's the phrase. Praising God and, you might underline this, having favor with all the people. That is the outside world. Having favor with all the people. So what does Luke mean here? What's the point of that phrase? Here's what I think the point of the phrase is. The joy that these Christians were experiencing... And the sacrificing that they were doing together did not remain in some holy huddle. It didn't develop some type of Christian club. What they were experiencing together spilled out over into the community, all the people, and they saw it as good. They, they grew in favor in their eyes, meaning they may have said, I don't know that I believe you. I don't know that I believe what you believe. I don't even know that I know why you do it. But the way in which you live, the way in which you care, the way in which you love is contagious. And we know that even more so because of reading the Apology of Aristides. Go home today and read that. Why do you not look excited? You know, as some of you are like, not a chance. I mean, I know you were on the way to church like, please quote the Apology of Aristides. It's been so long. What is this Apology of Aristides? It was written in about 125 AD. The emperor, who was skeptical of Christianity, charged Aristides to go study Christians, these early Christians, and said, report back to me on what they're like. And here, it's a long apology, 
But here's just a paragraph out of what Aristides said. Quote, Christians, O king, have found the truth, for they know and trust God, the creator of heaven and earth, from whom they have received commandments, which they engrave on their minds and observe in hope and expectation of the world which is to come. Their oppressors, they appease and make them their friends. They do good to their enemies. Their women, O king, are as pure virgins. Their daughters are modest. Their men keep themselves from unlawful union and uncleanliness in hope of a recompense in the other world. Falsehood's not found among them. They love one another. From widows, they don't turn away. They deliver the orphan from him who treats him harshly. He who has gives to he who has not without boasting. And when they see a stranger... They take him in and rejoice over him as a very brother. They observe the precepts of their Messiah with care, living justly and soberly as the Lord their God commanded them. Man, I just think, what if, what if somebody one day said, man, I want to know about this Christianity thing. I want you to go to the South Metro, and I want you to study Christians, and I want you to tell me what they're like. Would they know us just for what we're against? Or would they know us for what we are for and the good we bring to this community? And they grew in favor among all the people Look at me, dear friends. The church did not explode because some educated, eloquent leaders put together a business plan. The church exploded because housewives and farmers and businessmen and teenagers were cut to the heart by the gospel and it influenced the way they lived in the world. It's like in Acts chapter 19 when a man named Demetrius who like sold little idols of Artemis. He made these little trinkets like little souvenirs is what we would think of him as. So you could come to the temple of Artemis and you could get this little idol that he had made and Christianity is spreading and it's impacting the society and the followers of the way are turning things upside down. And here's what Demetrius says as he calls his colleagues, his fellow idol makers together and says this, Acts 19, 27, may it be of the South Metro. There is danger that not only this trade of ours may come to disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be disposed from her magnificence, she whom all of Asia and the world worship. In other words, these Christians are doing so much good, he didn't necessarily see it as good, that they're changing things. Those things that stand against God those things whereby we make a living from are going out of business because of the impact Christians are having in their culture. And they grew in favor with all the people. Berean, we have been placed here as change agents for good. Anybody, like, insert amen right there? Like, <laughs> Change agents have good. Amen. 
That's why we're here. And do you know why I know that's why we're here? Because I want to image what I think Jesus teaches here about this growing in favor. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says this, you know it well, you are the salt of the earth. You're the salt of the earth. Why salt? Why does Jesus, I mean, he could have used all kinds of metaphors like you're the ocean, you're the flower of the world, or whatever. Why salt? There have been all kinds of analogies that people give for salt and the meaning in Matthew 5. It was a very simple meaning for those in the ancient Near East who heard Jesus say that. Salt was and is a preservative. You see, in the ancient Near East, they don't have a refrigerator. It's not like you're going to say, hey, honey, just put that in the freezer. We'll eat it next week. No, nobody's saying that. If you have a piece of of meat or a piece of fish, the only way you're going to keep this from decaying, the only way you're going to keep this from going bad is to cover it in salt. And that's what they would do. Salt was a preservative, and so they would use it to keep it fresh and to keep it from decay. What is Jesus' point? You, if you're following Jesus, you are, not should be, not might be someday when you mature. You are the salt, the change agent of good in the earth, a place that is dealing and facing the sin of decay. Dear friends, In our community right now are people whose lives are messed up. Some of them are here this morning, and I am really glad, really glad you're here. You are welcome here. But do you know what bad salt does? It's like those immoral people, I just can't believe they live that way, and blah, 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 blah. Do you know what good salt does? Good salt loves them, serves them tries to help make their life better. There are neighborhoods and schools and on and on we could go of places in our community that are dealing with the issue of sin and decay. Do you know what bad salt does? Wouldn't want to live next to those people. Wouldn't want to rub shoulders with those kind of people. Wouldn't want to be involved there. What does good salt do? It serves. Heck, it might even move in the neighborhood. It might even specifically choose that school. But here's the point right here. We will not preserve until we're willing to serve. We will not preserve until we're willing to serve. Because Jesus is not saying, are you salt? Jesus is saying, are you good salt or are you bad salt? And his word's not mine. If you're bad salt, you're worthless. In terms of the kingdom purposes of God, you have missed the reason you're here, to be the salt of the earth. This means, dear Christians, we got to get out of our Christian bubble. Get out of your Christian bubble. We cannot be defined, and these are some good things, but we can't be defined only as Christian people with Christian friends who listen to Christian music and go to Christian schools wearing Christian clothes, isolated from the world for fear of radiation exposure to worldliness. 
You say, but if I do that, if I get out there and I begin to have relationships with people who are different than I am, won't I have to like share what I believe? Well, I don't mean to burst your Christian bubble, but that's the point. And I'll tell you this while I'm on a preaching soapbox. As a parent of three young children, I am just as much concerned about religion in their life as I am worldliness. That was free, by the way. (laughs) Alistair McGrath says it perfectly when he says this. The sad truth is much of modern evangelicalism has been locked and restricted here into the stale backwaters of a Christian subculture. Contact with the secular world is frowned upon. The love of God that initially calls us out of the world then propels us back into it. And here, oh, this is good. The world at its worst needs Christians at their best. And they grew in favor with all the people I may not agree with what you believe. I may not even know why you do what you do. But the way you live your life in this school, the way you live your life in this job, ain't no denying that. We are salt. But it's not just the mission to serve. Notice the next phrase in verse 47. It's the mission to save. Praising God and having favor with all the people. And then the next phrase is, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Right here. Have I been clear about our call to do good in the world? This means yes. All right. Most of you. Let me be equally clear on this point. If this is all we do, We are a humanitarian club, not the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. If we do not want to see people repent of their sin and put their faith in Jesus, we are not on mission with Jesus. Let me just break it down for you in a simple statement. I want to see people saved. I want to see people who are lost, who are blind, who are in darkness, who are in chains of sin set free because they know who God is and they hear about Jesus and they put their faith in him. Like Lisa, they fall under conviction and say, tonight, I want Jesus as my Savior. Do you want that? If we, wa- if we want to see what we see here in Acts 2, where the Lord, and by the way, it is God's work. The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved, but he used these Christians, and I want to give you at least three ways out of this passage in the book of Acts. If we're going to see that happen, if God's going to use that, here's what we have to do. Number one, it takes verbal proclamation. What strikes me about the book of Acts is what you don't find is, all right, let's all go out and be servant evangelists. No. What do you, I mean, it's like on every page. They proclaim the good news of Jesus. They speak and declare who Jesus is and how you can know him. You've heard me say this. I can't stand that quote, preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. St. Francis of Assisi, who didn't even say it, but that's a whole other point. 
The reason why that drives me, and I get the tone of it, I get the heart of it, it's, it's you know, we show people by our actions, yes, but words are necessary. Otherwise, they may just think you're nice. You must distinguish yourself that the reason why you love the way you love is because you have been loved by a father. And that's why the way you love is so different. Yes, it is action. I'm not denying that. But it's not preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. It's preach the gospel by your lifestyle and use words. And in fact, true story, and it's not a setup to a joke, there was a guy who literally had a heart attack in a church service. And the, some doctors in the, the service took him and took him out and was taking care of him. And the pastor stopped and had prayer and tried his best to continue. And the doctor came in, and this is all he did. He went. The pastor thought that meant he's fine, keep going. He preached his whole sermon. The choir behind him thought meant he didn't make it. So the whole time he's preaching, they think the guy's passed away. The pastor's wife, who was singing in the choir, came up to him after the service and said, you are the most insensitive man I've ever known. <laughs> what did I do? A man died in the congregation, in the service, and you kept right on preaching. The pastor said he he died? What? So he went to find the doctor, and much to his relief, the guy was fine. He hadn't passed. But the pastor looked at the doctor, and he said, from now on, this isn't enough. We can't just relay messages by actions. And the same is true with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It will take verbal proclamation, verbal sharing. It's also going to take total participation. No, notice the feel of this text. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. All came upon every soul. Verse 44, all who believed were together. Verse 45, they were selling their possessions. Verse 46, day by day attending the temple together. Do you see the flavor of this text was what? They're all doing this. I might get in trouble here, but that's okay. It wouldn't be the first time. Evangelism is not what you pay your pastors to do. You don't find in Acts chapter 2, but that's what the apostles are here for. In fact, it is very difficult. Can I just, like, be honest? You know when people say that, like, no, most of the time I just lie to you. Yes, be honest. <laughs> it's very hard to pastor in America because of the heightened pressure of church growth. What I mean by that is you're not effective if you're not growing. It's a sign of leadership whether or not the church grows or not. And in some cases that could be true. But I would submit to you in many churches throughout America, the problem with being plateaued or declined doesn't have anything to do with leadership. It's simply members who have forgotten the mission. 
of realizing that this is something God has called all of us to do, that everyone in this room who knows Jesus is called to be an ambassador, 2 Corinthians 5, for Jesus. Right here, the only qualification you need to share the love of God with others is to have experienced it yourself. If you know the salvation of God, you are perfectly equipped and qualified to tell other people where to find it. You don't need training, and I'm all for training. What you need is to experience the grace of Jesus. And that makes us an ambassador to plead and proclaim with others how to find that love of Christ. So it takes verbal proclamation, total participation, and lastly, but not probably finally, is desperate prayer. Look at verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. This people was an intentionally praying people. I wonder why. Because the mission we're on is supernatural. So we need, beloved, a supernatural power. Not a really impressive business strategy or strategic plan. And I'm all for those things. Those things are good. But what we need if we want to see a supernatural work of God is the supernatural power of God breathed out by the Spirit of God within the family of God. That's what we need because we're not NASA trying to get to Mars. What we are is a faith family wanting to see lives transformed by the gospel, and only God can do that. So we're in desperate need for him to do what only he can do, so we ought to pray like we want to see people saved. They devoted themselves to prayers. Is it any wonder that they're growing in favor and the Lord is adding to their number? Not as though that's a formula. But it's a model worth emulating. A desperate sense of God to do what only He can do, and that is to save lives. And isn't it interesting, by the way, that when Jesus in Matthew 5 says, You are salt of the earth, that's not all He says, is it? What comes next? You are the light of the world. City on a hill can't be hidden. You have a lamp. You don't hide it under a bushel. Oh, no. Right? The song. Remember that? <laughs> no, it shines. In fact, in the ancient Near East, they not only didn't have refrigeration, they didn't have electricity. So you'd take a lamp, you'd hang it in the middle of your home, and that light would illuminate the whole house. The purpose of that was to expose the darkness in the room so people could see. What in the world is Jesus saying? What is Jesus' point? The point is this. The world in which we live is full of darkness. It does not know God. It can't even find its way to God. In fact, the Bible says that the small g God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to the glory of the gospel. If the world can't see, if they cannot find their way to God, then why in the world are you here, Christian? You are the light 
of the world. You are here with the mission, with the purpose to shine your light to Jesus Christ. They don't know who God is. How are they going to know who God is? Well, that's where you come in. Jesus says, not only are we salt of the earth, we have a mission to serve and preserve, to, to serve for good. At the same time, we are the light of the world, we, which, by the way, in the Bible is a salvation metaphor. We are to shine our light in a way where the darkness is illuminated to the truth of Jesus Christ. And here's the beauty of this, that in these things, the light and the salt don't get the glory. Like nobody eats a piece of meat and says, man, that's awesome salt. <laughs> no, the salt doesn't get the glory. You don't shine a spotlight on something and say, "Woo, that's awesome light. Where I'm from, you shine a spotlight on something, you say, hurry up and shoot the deer before the cops get here. But that's a, that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother thing. It's a whole nother thing. You shine a spotlight on something, you don't say, woo, that's awesome light. You say, look at how clear the object is. Oh, we're not in this to get glory for ourselves. We're going to be salt and we're going to be light. Why? So that the world in the South Metro and the Twin Cities and to the ends of the earth will say, man, God's good. God's good. And you know what else they're going to say? So that's who God is. I believe. I repent. I trust Jesus. For the last five weeks, I have poured this out for you. This is who we are. We exist because we want to see lives in our community and our world transformed by the power of the gospel. Man, we want to see that. How? By being committed to gathering for worship, through growing in the word, through sacrificially giving to this work, and to going to the world, our community and beyond. Why? Because when the gospel cuts the heart, it can't be contained. Or as Lisa would tell us, it's as simple as this. When you know Jesus, you want other people to know him too. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that you would lay on our hearts now um, a conviction. Maybe there's some bad salt and dim lights in the room that we need awakening and renewal to be the salt that, you, that you've called us to be the light that you've called us to be. Put people on our minds right now, that family member, that coworker, that classmate, that individual or that family or that neighborhood that only we can reach by your power and strength. Put that on our hearts, not in a form of guilt, but a form of gospel motivation to serve and to share the good news of Jesus. Would you do that for us, Holy Spirit, as we worship? In Jesus' name, amen.